Welcome to the King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. Good morning. I think we're online. Yes, we are. Okay, so we want, we always, that Tara has put pictures of people up there on the balcony of this room. So we remember, people up here, remember, come on and see. Um, to welcome those who are joining us online, we are starting, this is King of Glory, adult education class. We're starting a new four-week series. And I am, I'll just tell you this personal thing while we get going because church ran late. Um, I had a, suggested to Tara, she leads it all day. You know, I've written to her to say, boy, destination because it matters. That's our theme for the year. And I would love to dive into something I think we don't know a lot about, and that is early Christian martyrs. And I said, because certainly that fits our theme of uh, destination. And I was thrilled when I saw the calendar come out and we begin today, um, as those of you who've been to 8 o'clock, if you haven't, maybe you don't remember, today is All Saints Day, where we are thinking about those who've gone before. And if you were there, you're like me. Maybe the, the song that we sang while we named people like Susan who have gone before, uh, and their witness to us, to encourage us, is part of our community of faith. So anyway, I was so excited we start today, and in four weeks, our last day is my favorite day of the whole church. I mean, I know Easter and Christmas, but my favorite liturgical day, let's call it that, is what is often now referred to as the last Sunday of the church year. I really liked it when we called it Christ the King Sunday. And especially here at King of Glory, where we get that iconic image with our cross of a King of Glory. And that's when we end, which will be very appropriate to the story that we will be looking at four weeks from today. An old, 80-year-old bishop, and bishop didn't mean the same thing back then, who goes bravely and with words of Christ and about Christ on his lips, refusing to recant, even though he's given several opportunities by the governor, I think it is. I've got to refresh my memory on what you call those people who were in authority in his city of what is now Izmir, Turkey. It is is Smyrna, called Smyrna back then. And he considered himself a fat and acceptable offer he wanted to be for Jesus, whom he considered the king of glory. So I'm really excited that that's what we're doing. That will be our time frame. And I think we probably have enough people in here. So we will begin. And I borrowed Pastor and Tara's um, terminology, profiles and strength. I wrote to her and said, can I use that too? I like that. <laughs> but for these two weeks, we're, we're going to look specifically, today is, well, I'll tell you that in a minute. Anyway, okay. If you've been with us with Pastors Chip and Flip on the Hilarious and Outrageous. This series, I mean, when they told me about it, I said, oh boy, we're going from that to the martyrs. (laughs) Our stories will not be hilarious, but they will be, in many ways, outrageous. To observe the faith, 
of those who've gone before can sometimes seem pretty outrageous. Their story. The so oh, sure. Yeah, we don't want to close anybody out, but that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah it'll just get louder, you know, because it's good music. <laughs> and a lot of it. And a lot of it. So anyway, what do we got going here? Okay, there. Okay, so we're going to start today with Stephen. Oh, we can't see that. Oh, we can't see. Okay, and I should have made those bigger. And then next week we'll quickly go through the, what happened to the apostles, the twelve, and then you know Paul and a few others. Quickly go through their stories, but focus on Peter's exhortation in his first letter to believers. His exhortation about persecution. And suffering. So we'll we'll ground ourselves there. Then the next week we're going to look at Ignatius of Antioch. This is Syrian Antioch. There are at least two Antiochs, but it's the one closer to Jerusalem. Okay. He also is a bishop at that time, but that just means uh, yeah, more like the older overseer of a community of faith. They didn't wear hats or anything like you know, like we think of cardinals or bishops or something today. And he goes to Rome and is fed to the beasts. And then we'll hear the martyrdom of Polycarp. We're going to focus primarily, it's what I like to do, on primary source documents. And the scriptures are a primary source document written at the time of what's going on. But we also have other ones. And so that's why we're going to only briefly go through what happened to the apostles because we don't have reliable primary source documents on theirs. We have tradition. We have things that came out of the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century that told of the traditions, but we don't have primary source. But for Ignatius, we have seven of his letters to churches as he's on his route to Rome. And then we have the community of faith in Smyrna wrote to other churches a letter documenting the martyrdom of Polycarp. So we're going to dive deeply into some stories that are in many ways outrageous because we're going to, I continually say, oh my gosh, could I ever have that kind of faith to stand up? Okay. So, and I can't even read this. Okay. So I'm going to come back here no matter where the camera is. In this series, we'll consider living to die and dying to live. Actually, I think that was Pastor Winterhoff thought of that when we were talking in the tell that. And then the purpose or purposes of martyrdom, we want to think through that and how those early believers prepared for such a final huzzah. As long as we're in Williamsburg, we'll put it that way. And we will use a psalm as our opening prayer. And how about if I think there, I know there are two, and the text is going to change. I tested this yesterday, took it home, and tried to make those words bigger so they match the words on a later Slide with the psalm, and it's not going to work, I don't think. I don't know why. Anyway, maybe, gentlemen, you could read the top verse, and then ladies will read the bottom so we can all both speak and hear this prayer from the psalmist, probably David, to the Lord. So, gentlemen, as the as deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When did I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, 
with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Why, my soul, are you outcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior and my God, and we can all conclude with, for he lives and reigns forever. Amen. Well, I hope that psalm puts your mind in, in the place that mine has been with the idea of those who face trials because of relationship with God. And yes, say, why am I downcast? Why am I fearful? Why... You know, have those emotions and yet come back to, yet will I hope in God. And I think that's what we're going to see in the stories of these weeks, and especially today, with Stephen. We are go- oh, we should think about the term martyr. Okay, just, uh, you know, you throw out the, what, what do you, how do you define martyr? A martyr. Someone. Yes. No, go ahead, Rita. Someone who dies for a cause. Dies for a cause? I like that. Yeah, hi, John. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Dies for other people. For other people, yeah. And I'm repeating just in case the, we have mics in here, but I'm <laughs> never sure if we're not loud enough. Anything witness. Else? Pardon? Witness. Oh, witness, yes, absolutely. In fact, that's where it comes from. <laughs> Thank you, Nigel. And I was thinking of that with Pastor's sermon. If you haven't heard the sermon yet, the sermon is the witness of the st- saints. And I was thinking, oh, good. You know, we were not talking about saints who were martyred today as we thought about All Saints Day. But that is, the term actually comes in the Greek and the Latin, I think. Anyway, you probably know, Kevin, because it's you... It's Greek. It's Greek, thank you. It says, ecclesiastical Latin is what the Oxford English Dictionary says, but it's from the Greek, yeah. It's a borrow word in Latin. It's, oh, okay. It's borrow. a borrow word in Latin. Okay. This reads as Okay. And you know, but, but sometimes people will even, we use the term in a derogatory way. Oh, she's a real martyr about that, you know. But, but we want to understand what we're talking about. And, it, and, and I love that the term means witness because that is what we see throughout all these stories. So Stephen, oh, and I have to tell you, where's that book? Um, we're going to talk about this more in the next coming weeks, but and this is just a, a lecture given. In procession before the world, martyrdom as public liturgy in early Christianity. So I, I think liturgy that we're, oh, maybe it's not up there yet. Okay, I'm sorry. There, there. It's the second line. Yeah, yes. Liturgy, liturgy. When we think about it, and, and Pastor he brought that home clearly today with Holy Communion. It is why, and this is why I believe King of Glory 
celebrates the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the table, however, whatever terminology you like, we celebrate that every time we gather for worship because its focus is exactly what the gospel's focus is. And that is we have a timely proclamation of the truth, of the story that we tell over and over, whether we're telling the little ones or whether we're telling the teenagers or, as Pastor mentioned, whether you're telling that story at someone's deathbed, it is the liturgy gives us the timely proclamation and an eternal perspective. And that's what Holy Communion does. And, and he said it today, that when we come to that table, when we celebrate his supper, we are not only communing together, but we believe, and the church has believed, for as long as it's been in existence, as far as, far as my reading goes, that we have what the author of this book calls, we, we enter into an axis of heaven and earth. A fourth century um, theologian said that at that moment when the when the word what we call the words of institution the Catholics call the mass okay when the words of institution are spoken on the night Jesus was betrayed and we lift up the bread and the wine Chrysostom this bishop said it's as though the very throne of God comes down to us and we are with him we celebrate holy communion with God himself and, as Pastor pointed out, with all the saints who have gone beyond. So there's this, there's this nexus, this, well, she called it an axis of heaven and earth, and it has to do with that eternal perspective. Yeah, we talk about Jesus has come for now. Timely proclamation of the gospel happens in sermon, in song, in the reading of the word, and also in Holy Communion. And it's that eternal perspective. And that is what we are going to see in these stories of the martyrs and what is happening. And so this professor, um, I can't remember where she's from, but anyway, she was giving us a a lecture. Robin Darling Young at Marquette University in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, says that she borrowed this term, and we're going to hear from this more next week, from origin. She is... It's with an E-N at the end, not I-N at the end. Um, A theologian from the 200s, so I think he's 3rd century, yeah. And he he wrote a text that we're going to hear a little bit from next week, or the 3rd week, if we don't get to it. An exhortation to martyrdom for those who are undergoing persecution. His own father had died, and he eventually was going to die. He says that martyrs are to go in procession before the world. He says, what other time then is more acceptable than when for piety toward God and Christ, we are led under guard in procession before the world, celebrating a triumph rather than being led in triumph. For the martyrs in Christ disarm the principalities and powers with him, and they share his triumph as fellows of his suffering. You you might hear a little bit of scriptural terminology there, that that, uh, 
uh, overcoming principalities and powers that are seeking to wreak spiritual havoc here on earth. And Origen is telling those younger folks who are probably going to face martyrdom, you aren't going to be led in triumph by the Romans, no. You are going to lead and proclaim who Jesus is for the world. Just like the liturgy proclaims that to us, this is a public liturgy. She says, yeah, well, we talked about that. Okay, so what we're going to talk about is, and I probably should say a bold, timely proclamation. Come on, are you using TV? No, not at all. I wondered why I was here. <laughs> Apparently got dropped off at the wrong room. I, I can get the door after you. This bold, timely proclamation. And, you know, we're talking about profiles in strength, and I hope that we keep in mind that we are never going to focus on strength within that person that is outside of the strength of Christ himself. That's the strength that we want to focus on. So anyway, um, I hope we'll just remember those as we go through. So we better get into our story for today because we have gone a little beyond the time. Okay, with his violent death, and maybe you can begin turning to Acts 6 and 7. Somebody who has one of these, maybe shout out what page it is. Because that's the one most people 914. have. 914. 914, thank you. Yeah. Um, Deacon Stephen sets the pattern of witness that we're going to see in these next weeks. Okay. So we're going to get there, and I think, okay, yeah. What? I don't know how you can see this all the way. I can't see it from here. Okay, so we are going to begin. We can't read two whole chapters. So we're going to have to, you're going to have to let me guide us through reading some particulars. Is there anybody who would be willing to read Acts 6, 1 to 7? And this is just to remind us who Stephen is. Anybody? Thank you, Kevin. Sure. Nice and loud. So there's, yeah, good loud voice. Thank you. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, the Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, first, just reactions from you. We've got a, we have a problem in the church. Um, you know, maybe some of the ladies in the LWML have been discussing this problem, and finally they brought it to the, to the elders, to the, to the gentlemen, to the apostles, and said, we've got a problem. Okay, 
what, what, did, what did you hear there that you, you might want to comment on or, or how they took care of this? What did you see? Anything? Any comments? They saw the widows were being neglected. They did. They saw and that suffering. they... Yeah, I was kind of making light of it. Yeah, they did. They saw that there was... And there was this dissension between Greek speakers and Hebrew speakers. We're in Jerusalem, but there's been a diaspora of Jews who have lived in parts of Africa, Asia Minor, even over to Italy, Greece, and they come back sometimes. Okay, uh, One author says he kind of thinks of them like, like Brooklyn Jews who <laughs> move, move from New York <laughs> to Jerusalem today, but they speak English, not Hebrew. Okay. So yeah, so we have this problem in the church. And notice what they do, what, what they do to solve it. Those names. Divide and make assignments to work on specific problems. Yeah. Serving, serving just, just, just serving and not worrying about the preaching. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, and, and, and interestingly... They don't do what they did when Matthias was chosen by God to replace Judas Iscariot, Pentecost time. They let God do the choosing with a, with, with a shorter stick casting or something. Lots. Yeah, that's right, it was casting lots. Thank you, Angel. But um, they say to the people, elect seven, seven men to take care of this, and they become the deacons, and the term means to serve, okay, to be in service. And so these men are supposed to do it. But one, is, one thing is very interesting, which I wouldn't have gotten, except I read a few commentaries before we get together, and that's all these names are Greek names. So they chose seven men from the portion of the community that was feeling disserved. <laughs> so, so that's a very interesting way to go about it. But look what we hear about Stephen, what his qualifications are. We're going to start reading. I, I'm sorry, I need to click. Then we know where we are. Eight. We're going to read eight to 16. I'm going to read this right now for verse eight. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogues of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Apparently, there well, one, one record said there were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. Scholars doubt that there may have been that many, but there were many, let's say. And one of them is apparently not called by a geographic name, but by the people who have come from other places. And Cilicia is the territory in which Saul would have been born, Saul who became Paul, Tarsus, that's there. So, so Luke is telling us that a bunch of Jews who had lived in these other areas of the world were now back in Jerusalem, and scholars say we don't know what to do with this freedmen's thing, except that it would mean they had been slaves at one point, and it's possible this happened when Rome conquered Judea in 63 BC, I think it was. Okay, and and but then they may have been emancipated, and so come back 
to Jerusalem and have gathered together is kind of like those who came from Chicago, Illinois, <laughs> meet one another very soon when you come to King of Glory, right? And, and the panels, you were among the first ones we met. Oh, Tom, are you from Chicago? Okay. So, and you know, you know what you like. You like Chicago pizza. And, okay. <laughs> okay, so apparently... There was a synagogue that was designated, and scholars really don't know what to do with this. But anyway, we get opposition from them about what's going on. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Would someone be now willing to read 11 to 16? Let's hear the rest of this part of the story. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, and I might not even believe this, except that this is a very contemporaneous piece of work. Luke's book, two-volume book, the Gospel and the Book of Acts. And his face shone like an angel. Now, what's he just been accused of? Blasphemy. Blasphemy, and it's blasphemy against the temple. Not yeah, they, that's that's what he's saying because they say that he says Jesus was going to destroy this temple, and okay, remember what Jesus has said. John tells us they're walking along, and he says, "Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up again in three days." Okay, and John, Kevin, um, his face was like that of an angel. He's showing the image of God. This is the initiation of his passion. I, I, I think you're right. His passion in terms of death, like Jesus' suffering. passion. Yes, yeah, suffering. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's what's happening. And he, he the, the accusers are saying that Stephen is speaking against God, speaking against the temple, because he's saying that Jesus the one about whom he speaks, was going to destroy it. But John tells us when Jesus said that, John says he was talking about the temple of his body. <laughs> okay. and that, So Jesus never made a threat, although that's what he was accused of. In the Sanhedrin also, same thing as with Stephen. We see a pattern that looks very much like Jesus' passion and suffering. But of course, Jesus is a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Stephen is what that one author calls an origin called a liturgy that's going to be performed before the world and for the sake of the world. Just like at King of Glory, when pastor says, go in peace, that all may know the love of Jesus. We say that what we are sent out to do is to be that liturgy before the world and let them hear the story about Jesus. 
So we want to see then that what's going on here is there are many, many parallels, and we can't, we can't take the time to go and look at all those parables, but you can back at home. If you want to see Jesus before the Sanhedrin, you could look at Mark 14. Um, it, one thing we know is that, or one thing scholars ponder, they're not certain, but they ponder, and that is this Greek-speaking versus the Hebrew-speaking, okay, they would... Any person who lived, okay, I would say almost any person who lived anywhere in the Roman Empire at this point in time would speak Greek. He could speak Greek because it's the language of business. It's it, franco-lingua. It's, it's what we speak. But when they were in their worship setting and reading the scriptures, the Jerusalem Jews liked their Hebrew, whereas the Greek-speaking Jews had come from around the empire and used what we call the Septuagint in Greek. Now, I'm not exactly sure which Jesus used. I have the feeling he could do either. But what we have scholars say is maybe it's not only the widow issue, but the widow issue brought to the forefront a theological issue that was going on. And this is, it isn't stated clearly here, But Stephen is going to say that the temple has been too important to the Jews. And he's going to put it in terms that Paul put it, and that Christ is the final sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice for sins. And therefore, after seven, I mean, we Christians say there's no further sacrifice needed, right? And in fact, in 70 AD, they're going to lose the temple and there will be no more sacrifices unless the temple is rebuilt someday. Let's go on and see what's happening in this story. Okay. Oh, why did that do that? Uh, I, don't know, I never can. I'm sorry. This technology thing. Tricky. Oh, I'm clicking the wrong thing. I think. There we go. Okay. In, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 50, we can't go through this, but what happens if you just kind of page with me? Like my Bible says, Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. He first goes through the time of the patriarchs with Abraham, okay? And then uh, down in verse 9, you'll notice he starts talking about Joseph, the Joseph that pastor just taught on, was it two weeks ago, in the Wednesday studies. Joseph, who comes, who's, you know, works in Egypt, as Pharaoh's number two or number one man. Then we get down to Moses in verse 20. Stephen is rehearsing Israel's history to the Sanhedrin. He's been accused of preaching, proclaiming Jesus, whom the accusers say wanted to tear down the temple. And Stephen goes back through the scriptures for those in the Sanhedrin. Then we get the call of Moses in about verse 30. And this idea in in verse 33, then the Lord said to Moses, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Stephen reminds them of the presence of the Lord in their midst, in the people of Israel, God is present. He he affirms that. They're saying, oh, you're trying to change the law? And he's reminding them, I'm with you. 
on all of this. This is, this is your history. This is my history. Then he gets to verse uh, 35 to 43. He talks about the wilderness wanderings. Then we get into right after that, 44 to 50, the tabernacle and the temple. And so I'm going to pick it up at about verse 44 of chapter 7 in Acts. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under, here comes Joshua, brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until, now he names another one of their forefathers, David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And remember, this is the temple that we're talking about to be built. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. This and the next words are something that probably infuriated and leads to the end that we get to, those of the Sanhedrin. Stephen says in verse 48, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. Made by men is a term the Jews would use to speak of idols. Okay, if you think back to Isaiah, in the, in the, I don't mean the 1940s, I mean the 40s, chapter 40s, and so 43, 45, he speaks about those idols of the pagans and how they, they form them and make them, and they're all made by men. So this would infuriate the Sanhedrin to call that temple something made by men. And this is where the scholars who wonder if maybe it was the widow issue that brought up a theological difference. It is possible, some scholars posit, that Stephen and the Greek speaking Jews, who remember, if they lived in those parts of the Roman Empire, didn't have the temple. Every Jewish male was supposed to go to the temple once a year, okay, to Jerusalem once a year. But it's possible that Stephen is saying, we no longer need this temple. Now, we know that the apostles were still going to the temple daily, They were doing some of their preaching there. We know Paul talks about wanting to get back to Jerusalem for Passover. So we know that a portion of that early church greatly desired to just keep doing the temple things. They're Jews, and the Messiah has come. And so this is great. But possibly when Stephen goes on this point, he may have hit a raw nerve with the Jewish portion, even of the early church, but certainly to the... Mike, you look like you're thinking something. No? Okay, all right. (laughs) Okay. But anyway, so the question here is, for Stephen, he's saying, we don't need this temple right now because Jesus has come and has been the perfect sacrifice. But, and to the early church, and I even, you know, I even hate to say church yet, because these are Jews. They are all Jews who are, not, are believing, what we call the church, believing in Jesus Messiah. But he's talking to the Sanhedrin and infuriates them. 
Um, John clarifies he does. at the point where he quotes. Right. He says, he does. by which he meant. Right. The Sanhedrin hadn't read the, that, and it wasn't written yet. Every <laughs> yeah. accusation against Jesus heard by the Sanhedrin was a lie. Yeah, right. Period. Um, and so there's no reason to think that somebody who was looking at best construction and in the period <laughs> didn't know that Jesus meant his body. We, you know, it, 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 it's it's. The, but if if you want some verb, this is this is taking a, a, a quote out of context in classic form. Okay. You know, fortunately, we've grown beyond that today. Yes, right. We do, I mean, I'm with you, John. I think it would have been, it, it would be great if there hadn't been the opportunity, but Kevin, you're right too, and that is that every accusation against Stephen here, just like the accusations, accusations against Jesus, are lies. Okay. Oh, Nigel, yeah. Well, at verse 51, when he really, like, you know, nails them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hard in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. He, and, and he's talked, talk, I mean, he's gone through the whole story right. of the Exodus and Moses, and, and it, you, you know, it's like he's saying there were two fathers in, in the wilderness, there were those that were true believers and those that were not. And the ones that were not fell away from the faith. I, I mean, I'm, I'm taking a lot of liberty here. Yeah, okay, not, I agree. I, I don't think it's literally like this. It's just, it's, I mean, there's almost that quality. Like he's saying, you're not, you're, you're, you're proud of your circumcision and your, you know, your Jewish roots yeah. and who you are as a, as a Jewish yeah. people, but... It's really faith. Your ears are uncircumcised. Yeah. You might be circumcised and brought into the faith, but you're not truly circumcised because your heart and your ears are not. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. And your lineage is not the true believer lineage. It's not those who are, uh, you know, that whose father truly is Abraham. Whether they're Greek or Jewish or whatever ethnicity they are, their father is Abraham by faith, not by <laughs> lineage. You know, it's like he's drawing that distinction there. Yeah, yeah. And and Paul will make those points that you're making, you know, in Romans, that the lineage is an Abrahamic faith, not Abraham's seed. Yeah. Anything else before we go on? Um, oh, I know, a Catholic scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, in commentary on this exact point in the scriptures, having we've just heard quickly, we didn't read it, Stephen's speech. This is what Johnson says. I, I may have put it on our handout, I don't remember. Not only in style and diction, oh, I'll probably put it up here. Though. It is on the handout. I don't know why it's doing that. Okay. Um, not only in style and diction, but above all, in its religious perceptions, this discourse, Stephen's speech, represents the special vision of Luke himself. Not that kind of vision, but what he's trying to communicate. Indeed, it is in Stephen's speech that we find most clearly articulated not only our author's interpretation of biblical story, but also his understanding of how that story is continued 
in Jesus and the apostles. Stephen's speech is as a whole. The key Luke provides his readers, get this, for the interpretation of his entire two-volume narrative. Stephen's just gone through, as, as you just pointed out, Nigel, the, the history of these people. And Johnson is saying it is at this point in the two volumes, I don't know why this is doing um, that we get what Luke's main point is. And that is, God has called us, Jew and now Gentile, into relationship with him. The history of the Jews has led up to this point in time, Stephen saying, and is now fulfilled. That's what's happening in Stephen's speech. I'm going to try to get us somewhere here. I don't know how you do this. Oh, okay. Too many slides. So let's see what happens. Can we get there? There we go. No time. I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, okay. We did that. All right. We're going to go here. There. I don't know how to get rid of that side now. But here's another, another one of the paintings of this, um, of Stephen's martyrdom. So let's read the story as it ends. The stoning of Stephen. Verse 54. Somebody want to read 54 to the end of the chapter? And then we will. I can read. Okay, thanks. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down, witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said he did this, he fell asleep. Yeah. Reminding us again of Jesus' crucifixion. This is, this is such a sobering story. I mean, that's why I said to come off of hilarious and outrageous <laughs> to these so sobering. And yet, if martyrdom is as Robin Darling Young says, or his origin said, is, is this intersection of heaven and earth. What we've got going on is someone saying, I don't care what you all say is reality. I know reality. And reality is found in the life with Christ. And the eternal perspective that says, Nothing else matters at this point for Stephen. 
And of course, you get the low cello tone when we find out that Saul is, you know. <laughs> um, when, when Stephen calls out and says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, that Sanhedrin and those people, those good Jews who knew their Old Testament and knew their book of Daniel like we don't, Daniel says, then I continued to watch. Whoops, um, oh I got it in the right place? Yeah. I continued to watch because he's having a vision because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a time. He's got this vision going on, you know, an apocalyptic vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me, Daniel said, was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that would be God the Father in our terminology, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. I mean, many, I mean, some of these things we also hear in our liturgy from the book of the Revelation when we sing, this is the feast. Okay? Um, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He's a king of glory that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When Stephen calls out and says, I see son of man, this is what the Jews know he's talking about. But Daniel was prophesying Jesus coming and Jesus' victory over sin, death, and the power of Satan. So they cover their ears. They gnash their teeth. These are, these are the things you would do. They have the right to kill him. Deuteronomy and Leviticus, those laws, give the authority to the Jews, the Sanhedrin, it is eventually called, to stone someone to death for blasphemy. The Romans, but now the Romans are ruling, the Romans had decided they weren't going to get involved in religious issues, so they had allowed the Jews to have the authority to stone someone to death. So no one had to take, they didn't have to take Stephen to the Pilate figure, okay? They didn't have to do that. The authority was with the Jews to stone him to death for blasphemy. Father, forgive them. This, this eternal perspective. Remember, um, and Saul is holding the coat, okay? The coats. And let's remember, when Saul has his road to Damascus experience and the spirit speaks to Ananias and says, go, meet Saul, he's coming, um, he, he's, you're going to pray for him and he's going to preach. And Ananias says, oh, Lord, um, no, he's on the warpath. Uh, that's what we hear about him. He's out to get us. We're, I don't want to go to him. And God says, go, I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Please remember, Saul is holding those coats for the stoning of the first martyr. But God is very soon going to tell Saul, who becomes, is renamed Paul in his new life as a gospel bearer, that he will suffer too. 
couple of, uh, I don't even know how to get there. Uh, here we go. Nothing new under the sun. How do I do that? Okay. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Right? I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. And we heard it this morning in the Beatitudes, the reading from the Beatitudes, that you will suffer in my name. And blessed are those who suffer for my name. We, we also get... Well, we're going to go beyond that. Paul, writing in the book of Romans... I'm sorry, I'm going to come back here. <laughs> writing in the book of Romans, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. There, you know, we're old enough in this room to believe these words, I think. I don't know if when I was 18, I would have believed this, but I think we're probably all old enough and lived long enough. And, and suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us, some of would say, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is what the early church began to realize was going to be normal. It's not normal for us to face persecution. I mean, we know there's persecution around the world. Um, but this, the early church began to realize, was the new norm. Now, I want you to hear some of the things that were written about this. Ambrose, 4th century uh, bishop whom Augustine went to listen to because he loved his preaching and eventually then came to know Christ himself. Ambrose said about Stephen seeing Jesus, Jesus stood as a helpmate. He stood as if anxious to help Stephen, his athlete, in the struggle. He stood as though ready to crown his martyr. Let him then stand for you. That was a good sermon. I think he probably <laughs> preached that day. Let him stand for you. Stephen's name in Greek, Stephanus, means crown. When his parents named him, they probably didn't think it meant this kind of crown. And here's what, and this, I can't even see who it is. Oh, there's another, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, says, while his hearers gave vent to their annoyance, Stephen remained calm, fully controlled, as before by the Spirit of God, as, as he had been before by the Spirit of God. Much more real to Stephen in that moment than the angry gestures and cries of those people there was the presence of Jesus at God's right hand. I read that with Bruce, I read that this week, and, thought, and I thought back to when our youngest son, musician, skinny, uh, the least likely of our kids to become a Marine, volunteered after 9-11, became a Marine, ended up in Iraq. And I told Jean, I, if you've heard, I've probably said this before, so I apologize if you've heard it before. I said to Jean, while Jim is over there, I will not watch any war movies, and I will not watch or listen to the news, because 
I'm going to be praying for Jim all the time, and I want to have confidence and hope. And ah, (laughs) that, my, isn't that a lovely alarm? But that means it's 10.30. This, Jean is supposed to take medication at 10.30. (laughs) So I have my alarm set for it, and it comes on whether you turn the thing off or not. Okay, so I, I, I said I wouldn't watch the news because I didn't, I didn't want to have my focus on what was going on there. I wanted to be able to trust the Lord, so I wasn't going to go to warm weeds. And then my prayer, I figured, I can't ask the Lord not to let Jim get hurt. He's a Marine. Uh, he volunteered to be a Marine. So I, I decided my prayer would be that Jesus would loom larger than anything Jim and I think that's what happened to Stephen here. You know, he's, and we're going to see this in the martyrs over the next weeks, that all of a sudden Jesus and his reality, the reality of him as king of glory, the king of the world, is the real truth about life. I hope that's what we can Accomplished together here. I'd love to get. Did I give you the cartoon? Yeah. Yes. Oh, read it. Would you just read it? Because I can't even read mine. What it uh, says at the bottom of the cartoon. James. James. Yeah. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, because the testing of your faith produces endurance, so that you may be lacking in nothing. Thank you, Rita. Thank you. I thought we would end, in fact, we're going to end every week, but, and there's eight verses, so we can do two a week, and it works out perfectly. We will sing for all the saints as our um, <coughs> final prayer, because it is a prayer of praise to this God who is so real that a Stephen can stand there and not only go victoriously, not being led in triumph, but triumphantly leading and asking God to forgive his persecutors. That's how large Jesus loomed for Stephen. And I think we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks. So, um, I don't really like to start. You got a singer in here who likes to start? Okay. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who by faith before the world confess thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia, alleluia. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain. In the well-fought fight, Thou in the darkness drew their one true light. Alleluia, alleluia. And I'm going to say it like Pastor would, go in peace. Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.